You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to hear from Grammy nominees, the Black Pumas, about the songs that made them decide to pursue a life in music. But first, we're looking at the shady side of music. That's right, Greg. We've gathered our favorite songs about low-down, no-good scoundrels. (laughs) But to get us started, we're going to talk with someone well-versed in shady characters in music, Jake Brennan, host of the hit podcast Disgraceland. Jake is actually uh, focusing on the real-life misdeeds and uh, questionable activities of musicians. Uh, Some of them may have inspired the characters we're going to talk about in song, but he describes Disgraceland as a blend of music history, true crime, and transgressive fiction. Jake, welcome to Sound Opinions. Stoked to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. So, Jake, we want to get philosophical. Unlike Hollywood, right, we've seen plenty of actors uh, who've done something really questionable, sometimes criminal, right? Um, And then the fans kind of fall away. Uh, The supporters fall away. Hollywood certainly falls away, stops casting them, right? In music, it seems that often... um, criminal or immoral actions, if you will. I'm, you know, 20 years of reporting on R. Kelly has made me ponder this question. You know, is the fact that that some of the stuff he did was so reprehensible and or criminal, um, is that part of the appeal? So here you have this show that is devoted to these in-depth tellings of, uh, of uh, misdeeds and sometimes criminal actions by uh, famous musicians and, and, and other characters and... Uh, is that part of what music fans like? I think so. I think it's uh, the criminality, or at least the bad behavior, is baked into the cake, as they say. And I feel as though the music industry was a different place in the 1970s, 1980s, even in the 90s than it, than it is now. And a lot of this behavior uh, was accepted. Uh, record labels, um, and I'm not trying to say this from a you know, high and mighty point of view at all, but record labels excused a lot of behavior just to compete and sell records and Mm -hmm. i think this sort of myth of the rock star grew up you know sort of in the in the latter part of the 20th century and it was accepted it's celebrated i mean to call somebody a rock star is like a way to praise somebody oh you're a rock star you know you did good at your job you're a rock star and and it's across genres i mean r&b and soul and funk and rock and certainly hip-hop none of these genres has had a lack of uh criminal behavior right i mean rick james is one of the most criminal minded musicians i've ever come across everything from his mom was dealing drugs to to jazz guys when when he was a little kid to eventually he's he's helping the colombian cartel smuggle drugs into the states Mm -hmm. to you know everything that went down with the abduction of the women and the crack i mean it's just like his whole life is marked by true crime in some way or another yet he creates this style of funk that is totally unique and, you know, sells like crazy. So what you're saying, uh, Jake, is that Tipper Gore was right all along. This is going to corrupt the youth of America <laughs> because these are despicable human beings and they, you know, they are infesting the minds of our young people at an, at an impressionable age. Exactly. Yes. yes. Uh, what Tipper Gore left out, however, was that it's wildly entertaining stuff. And just from a storytelling perspective, for me, I mean, these guys, you know, the way I, I don't do what you guys do, I couldn't pretend to do it. You guys are, are real you know, journalists and music historians, and I'm a storyteller. I, I try to look at these guys in the same way that John Ford would look at cowboys or Martin Scorsese would look at gangsters. They're, they're wildly entertaining characters that I'm, I'm trying to 
tell their stories and be as entertaining as possible in a way that does their stories justice. Well, you know, the famous John Ford quote, when the legend gets bigger than reality, you know, uh, repeat the legend. Mm-hmm. There, there's an element of that. You know, Lester Bangs, to put it in one of my favorites, you know, in rock and roll, there is no fact, only myth, right? But, Jake, some of the, the misdeeds, uh, the Ramones throwing television sets out the window and almost hitting passersby in Queens. Okay, we can kind of the almost being the key. Mm-hmm. If, if someone had died... Um, but, you know, some of the things, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis allegedly uh, being a killer more than that nickname with one of his later wives, um, it's a sad story, and it's a horrible story. He's never tried. He's never indicted. He never pays a price for that. Do you feel uh, at all uh, an element of, of, like, exploitation in dealing with, uh, some would say celebrating, these 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 horrible incidents in the lives of great artists that— it makes them a little less great to plenty of people. Um, yeah, I don't feel as though it's a disgrace that we're celebrating the actual misdeeds more than, you know, I can sell, I can separate the art from the artist in most cases. And mm-hmm. I, I'm very critical of Jerry Lee Lewis in that episode of his behavior. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I wink and nod at sort of his badass image and the whole thing about wanting to assassinate Elvis Presley. I mean, that that is funny to me, whether or not he did or did not kill his wife. And I think the evidence is pretty clear in one way or another, which what happened there. Um, but it doesn't none of that erases the fact that, you know, I'm going to put on live at the Star Club with Jerry Lee Lewis and the Nashville teens playing behind him. And it's going to make me drive 100 miles per hour. It's as good as rock and roll gets. It's so good. It's incredible. But, you know, it's it's also interesting. You know, I can't completely objectify it because with some artists, for some reason, it's a lot different. You know, I I don't know why, but, you know, you know, I'm not like a Ryan Adams junkie or whatever, but I haven't listened to a Ryan Adams record since that whole thing came out. But I don't hold that same standard to when I hear Thriller come on and I don't know why, I mean, I just, it's just the way it is. So to answer your question in the telling of these stories, I think it's pretty clear that I'm separating the musician from the music. And in most cases I have a deep reverence for a lot of this music and I I can't hide that. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. really, it's not really going to change, you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's one of those slippery slopes that will ever forever be slippery because it's so ill-defined. There is no right or wrong sometimes. It's just kind of this huge gray area where there's good and bad. And I think it's up to each listener, each fan. I'm curious what kind of feedback you get from the people who are listening to your show. What are they listening for and what are they, what are they getting out of it? What, are your, what is your sense of your audience? You know, there's something about this, the medium of podcasting where these stories... The main reaction that I get from fans and have gotten from day one when I released that Jerry Lee Lewis episode as the first episode was was really like, holy cow, I, I can't believe this happened. And that was my reaction when I read that story 20 years ago in a Rolling Stone anthology or wherever I read it. And, you know, all these stories are out there. And off, oftentimes, like I just got done researching Ray Charles and I wrote the Ray Charles episode and the stuff that Ray Charles cops to in his autobiography is is shocking and it's been out there for years mm. and it's but you know it's in a book <laughs> so it's different and it's not like well people i'm not trying to say people don't read it's just there's something just more jarring about it when you cram it into this 30 minute guys telling you a story in your ear and you know it's kind of like pummeling you with these 
these incidents that have taken place. I don't mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, but the rea to answer your question, the reaction I most get is is shock. So so where do you, how do you define transgressive fiction or storytelling versus journalism? Well, journalism is clearly people who are going out there and they're sourcing stuff on their own and they're generating stories based on their investigative uh, resources and 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 how and the work that they're doing that is not what I do at all mm -hmm. everything that I am doing I've been clear about this from day one is based on stories that are already out there oftentimes directly from the musicians mouths themselves and their autobiographies I'm very clear about what is factual and what is um, where I'm using creative license I don't you know I'm I may depict a event that happened between an artist and someone else mm. and I may and I may actually you know use creative license to bring that to life but I'm not inventing events out of thin air that did not happen and I haven't been challenged on that because you know I haven't gone beyond whatever line that is um, and I try to adhere to just you know the basic rules of of storytelling and I'm not trying to misrepresent these artists in any way and I think if I was out there trying to pretend to be an investigative journalist or a journalist of any kind, there'd be a different result. But I, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Do you, and and you th you're pretty confident that the audience knows the difference. I, I mean, I'm thinking of, of a rather innocuous tale in one of the two Beatles episodes. George and, and John's uh, dentist dosed them at dinner one night. And the first acid trip they have is a freak out because they weren't expecting to take it. And they're driving around in the Aston Martin in London. And having written a book about psychedelic rock with a chapter on the Beatles, that is everything I know about that incident. But the way you tell the story, it's about 10 minutes long, and there are lights and streaks and sounds. And I think, you know, one of them is hearing the chants from the Wizard of Oz flying mm. monkeys in their head. Now, all of this, having done my research, uh, my friend, <laughs> on, on the uh, psychedelic experience, all of this is quite possible, but we don't know that it happened. Right. We don't know that it happened. We don't know that it didn't happen either. <laughs> right. I'm willing to grant that. You know. And I've, yeah. done, I've done acid before, and I'm sure you guys have or have no people who have and all kinds of stuff happens and again nothing like everything that happens in that scene that you're depicting like everything from when they're at the dentist's house and they're listening to Burt Bacharach I mean that that happened that's in Peter Brown's book you know he was very impressed with the dentist's wife they were driving in a Mini Cooper um, the, the conversation that was going on in the back seat between uh, Patty Harrison and Cynthia Lennon was, was their reaction was accurate that's all from like I said from Peter Brown's book I trust Peter Brown. He knew those guys clearly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's not going to be he's not going to be making stuff up when he's telling the story. And I'm giving the story color when I talk about you know you know tracers that are going by and here and f filling things out with audio design because that's what happens when you do acid. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm willing to grant you that that license as uh, as as a storyteller. You know, you bring that scene to very vivid life. But I can understand why then you wouldn't want to do Marilyn Manson. This license we give musicians to mythologize themselves, and we sort of, like 13-year-old boys, chuckle at misbehavior, and then we find out that wasn't a myth, that was reality. It just, it you know, it just, it can be troublesome, and, and no wonder uh, so many people are unaware of actual bad behavior. I mean, it was no, no secret that Phil Spector could be violent. 
He was shooting guns off for 25, 30 years, and then he finally killed someone. Right, exactly. Just like, I mean... <laughs> I mean, you know firsthand the R. Kelly thing that, you know, just like the Bill Cosby thing, like that, that stuff was out there in the ether. Like we, we knew it, we heard of it. I mean, there's not, there's not one example in any of my episodes where I'm celebrating misogyny or the, the bad behavior of men towards women. In fact, I make a point to point it out, even, even in yeah. cases when it has nothing to do with the story. Like you can't, that's why in that Bowie episode, I have to mention Lori Maddox because yeah. somebody's yeah. going to bring it up. Um, yeah. it's the same thing in the Led Zeppelin episode. And there's that sort of rock star, like, you know, we're going to bang a bunch of chicks. That's not what Disgraceland is about. It's never been what it's about. Um, I, again, I'm not a journalist, so I can have whatever editorial point of view I want. And clearly I've been critical of that stuff. I don't think I've missed it, but when do we get the six uh, part episode on the Eagles? <laughs> right after I do the 18 part episode on the Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking to Jake Brennan, the writer, host, and producer of Disgraceland. Uh, Jake, thanks so much for illuminating us about your uh, show. Awesome to be here, guys. Thank you so much. I love the show. Uh, I just want to let you know that the Todd Rundgren episode had me reaching for my Utopia to face the music vinyl copy. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Have you listened to Disgraceland? So what do you think? Leave us a voice message at our website. Coming up. We're going to share our favorite songs about fictional shady characters. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner in crime is Greg Cott, and we are ready to celebrate some transgressive fiction. Songs about villainous scoundrels, no good, <laughs> rotten people. Yes, Erica Badu is not a rotten person, Jim. I'm going to kick us off here with this. Uh, but uh, the person she is singing about in Tyrone uh, definitely is. You know, one of the things I miss about concerts is going to see people like Erica Badu on stage because oh, yeah. she is a magnetic performer uh, who is into improv and, and uh, making stuff up on stage. It's sort of a spontaneity. Yeah, very theatrical. Uh, going to see shows, uh, you know, is is part of that experience. An artist like her, she owns that stage. And uh, while the story goes with Tyrone, one of her biggest hits was not did not appear on her debut album, but did appear on a live record that she uh, issued afterward. Uh, is that she essentially made up the song on stage? Mm -hmm. It was an improvisation over an instrumental backing by her excellent band and uh, freestyled these lyrics. And she was um, singing in the song uh, about her boyfriend, but the uh, Tyrone that is mentioned in the track is not the boyfriend. Mm. So you're saying, why are you bringing him up? Well, here, it's kind of a layered story. <laughs> she is kicking this guy out for being a layabout. He's a lazy guy. Every time he comes over, it's not just her and, 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 and the boyfriend, it's the boyfriend and his crew you uh, know yeah. three or four guys always coming over and I go why are you bringing these guys over all the time yeah. you seem to be attached to these guys so much why don't you get them to help you move out because i'm kicking your butt out of my <laughs> my house so she said why don't you call tyrone and get him over here to help you move your stuff uh, tyrone uh, is a member of the crew so tyrone is not only a member of the crew but she's implying that he's not only a friend of the bad boyfriend, but also an enabler. You know, he's mm -hmm. a guy, he sees what's going on, but he's not telling this guy, hey, listen, you know, you, she deserves your attention. We shouldn't be here. Um, so sort of a freeloader, an enabler, 
um, and, and just as bad as The Bad Boyfriend in many ways. So okay. Tyrone gets the title of the song, and, and for good reason, according to Erica Badu. Here's Tyrone from Erica Badu on Sound of Pain. Every time we go somewhere, I gotta reach down in my purse to pay your way and your homeboy's way. And sometimes your cousin's way, they don't never have to pay, don't have no cause. Boys try to hang around with stars Like I do, I'ma tell you the truth Show and prove, book in the booth I think you better <laughs> Call him And tell him You can't use my phone. That is Tyrone from Erica Badu on Sound Opinions, one of uh, my songs about a scoundrel. Yeah. What do you got for us, Jim? I'm going to start us off with two covers, uh, Greg. And the first is uh, a cover of a song by Mr. Bob Dylan. When I famously got fired at Rolling Stone, went down in flames uh, for panning Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, the song that kept going through my head for a good six months was, I ain't going to work on Jan Wenner's farm no more. (laughs) I was rewriting Maggie's farm. You know, you look at that classic from 1965 uh, from Dylan's, bringing it all back home, and there's not one, there's not two, there are three scoundrels, mm-hmm. all part of the 1%, the capitalist boss, the worst kind of boss. Maggie treats uh, Dylan as the employee character quite badly. But even worse is the way that her brother and her pa treat him. This is not a family you'd want to be working for on Maggie's farm. And Bob says, I ain't going to work on Maggie's farm no more. Of course, it's one of those great uh, 60s anti-the-man songs, right? And Dylan, meanwhile, he's got a head full of ideas driving me insane. Uh, He's going to get out of Maggie's farm. He's going to start working on those ideas. Uh, It was covered by the great R&B artist Solomon Burke. Uh, Many covers of this song over the years, but taking it into the soul R&B realm, I think does something very different because we all think about... um, you know, the horrible life of, uh, of, of itinerant farmers and, uh, and even slaves, uh, you know. Uh, but Solomon's jaunty <laughs> mm. celebration of the song focuses not on the uh, villainous, you know, or, or Maggie, uh, Pa, and brother, but on the joy he has of uh, being able to strike out on his own. Uh, so this is Solomon Burke's version of Maggie's Farm. National 
Maggie's Farm. It's a great song. It's great in Solomon's hands. It was great in Dylan's. Did you, do you know that cover? I do. I, I, I love Solomon Burke. I yeah. love that choice. Yeah. What a, what a singer. He's a great singer. You know, the idea of villains in songs is so longstanding. You know, uh, they become celebrated. They almost become a larger-than-life characters in, them, in themselves. Sometimes they're totally made up. In this case, there's a kind of a mixture of myth and true-to-life uh, reality. Stagger Lee may be one of the top five, may be the top most well-known folk songs of the last century and a half. Yeah, um, yeah. It is written about a real-life uh, you know, murder in the late 80s by one... Stag Lee Shelton in St. Louis. You're talking about the 1880s. Yes, the 1880s, <laughs> yes. And uh, he, uh, he killed a man named Billy Lyons in a card game. And there was a dispute in a card game, and they ended up uh, getting into a fight. Uh, Stag Lee Shelton pulled a, uh, a gun on Billy and shot him dead. Went to prison for, the, for his crime. Uh, got out of prison eventually and then went back into prison a year later and uh, for another crime that he had committed and eventually died in prison. Mm. But anyway, the legend grew. Like, it, it became a huge... Uh, it was one of those scandalous occurrences uh, that first consumed the Midwest where it happened in St. Louis and then became uh, known all around the United States. It became a field holler. It started, started in, the, in, the, in the plantations with... with uh, uh, you know, the workers singing about this legend, and then was uh, turned into a song by people like Mississippi John Hurt, and mm. later Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Woody Guthrie did versions of it. Uh, the most popular version may be the Lloyd Price hit in uh, 1959, but it is a completely watered-down version. Ah. Spares us all the blood and guts and gore and, uh, you know, nastiness in the song. Now, murder ballads should be visceral. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that is what uh, the, the rulers, uh, the Jamaican uh, rock steady band, understood. But they twisted the lyrics in the same fashion that the Grateful Dead and Nick Cave did when they covered the song. You know, give, mm-hmm. giving the story their own spin, the rulers put the spin on... You know, let's talk about this thing from Billy Lyons' point of view. He got cheated by this guy, you know. Staggerly was trying to uh, cheat him in this game of cards. So Billy Lyons made the mistake of pulling a knife on Staggerly. Staggerly t- pulled out a gun. You, you don't and bring shot a knife him. to a gunfight. Absolutely. No. That is rule number one yes. of any kind of battle, right? I came uh, from battle, Jersey. Right? I had it tattooed on my back. Exactly. And uh, The Clash uh, heard that song. They loved it. They, they thought it was a terrific version of sort of turning that tail around and put it in the hands of the trying man. If you're going to cheat cheat me in a small game like this, imagine what you do to the people around you when things really count. You're cheating the trying man. The trying <laughs> man being Billy Lyon, right? So All right. The, the Clash ad- adapted that and uh, turned it into a uh, one of the most uh, iconic songs from that uh, London Calling album in 1979. Wrong M. Boyo, it's called in the version that The Clash is doing based on the ruler's original version of that staggerly tale on Sound Opinions. Why do you try to cheat? Man. You better stop.
Boyo, yeah, that's a classic. The Clash bringing the Stagger Lee legend uh, uh, forward. Um, Greg, I'm going to play another deep classic, Mac the Knife. You know, I have been reading a lot lately about the Weimar Republic, that explosion of creativity in art and architecture, sexuality, theater, music in Germany before the very bad sequel of uh, the Nazi era. Uh, And, of course, uh, leading lights in the theater and in the music world were Kurt Weill and Bertolt Breck. And their three-penny opera debuts in 1928, just days before uh, it's about to have its first uh, staging. Um, The the actor playing uh, Mac the Knife, a uh, murderous character who, among other crimes, commits arson robbery, rape. Uh, I want to make clear, we, we do not endorse this behavior. Uh, but look, you know, from the, from the classics of literature to comic books to WandaVision, a lot of times the most interesting characters are, are do horrible, horrible things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and Mac the Knife was. He, you know, was an assassin. Uh, no good. Uh, you know, but, but, but uh, uh, you know, uh, Vile had written the tune really quickly, and Bertolt Brecht provides the lyrics. They don't give it to Mac the Knife to sing, but another observer talking about this guy who has like shark teeth. Mm. You know, everything about him is sharp and dangerous in the many, 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 many versions of it that would follow the Weimar era. Uh, You know, of course, the biggest hits, Bobby Darin. A lot of people hate on that song because he smooths it out and makes it hips to jazz, you know. Uh, But I I, kind of like Bobby Darin. But you got to say, if ever there was one musician, uh, you just mentioned him, who was born to sing Mac the Knife, it's Nick Cave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. So, you know, the there were uh, two Hal Wilner-produced uh, tribute albums to the work of Brecht and Vile. Uh, September Songs was the collection that gave us Nick Cave's version of Mac the Knife, and it's it's just immortal, right down to that barrel organ. You know, it was a, in the original. It was propelled by this thing that was a cross between a small organ and an accordion, mm-hmm. and uh, and that umpa umpa powers Nick Cave. See the shark with teeth like razors, and he wears them in his face, and Mackey. Got a knife, but not in such an obvious place. Now see the shark, how red his fins are as he slashes at his prey. Oh, Mac the Knife wears fancy gloves, which give the Thames, turbid waters, men abruptly tumble down. Well, is it plague or is it kind? 
Nick Cave covered Mac, the knife. <laughs> Mac Heath was his name, hence Mac, the knife. Yeah, you, you could see uh, Nick Cave as a character in a uh, Weimar Republic uh, lounge back in the day, you know, cabaret. Yeah, yeah. yeah Nick Cave yeah. and Susie Sue are, are just the <laughs> cast of the whole Weimar era. Indeed. We're talking about bad, bad people in, in songs about uh, villainous characters, and I can't think of a greater villain than uh, the title character in Goodbye Earl by the Chicks, uh, then known as the Dixie Chicks. Formerly right? the Dixie Chicks. This song's got a great, interesting history, because Dennis Lynn, the songwriter, uh, had been recording, had been writing hits uh, in the Nashville Pipeline since the early 70s. His first uh, major hit was for Elvis Presley, Burning Love, that was his song. Wow. And later on, he uh, had hits for Gary Morris and Don Williams and Eddie Raven and Mark Chestnut and Garth Brooks in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Goodbye Earl was a song that had sort of been hanging around for a decade. It was recorded, from what I can gather, once on a record that never got released around 1990 by a band that nobody remembers anymore. How the Chicks ended up finding this song and embracing it, I don't exactly know. But given what I do know about the Dixie Chicks that at that time, this is the one group in Nashville that would have taken this song head on and embraced Fearless it and said, women. we're yes. going to go with this one. Yeah. Because it says a lot about abuse and about women who fight against it and, and, and uh, how they can possibly deal with it. Now, there's a comedic side to it, a very darkly comedic side to it. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, these high school friends conspire you know, that one, it's the story of uh, high school friends, Marianne and Wanda. Marianne goes off to conquer the world. Wanda stays home and meets this lousy guy, Earl. Treats and, her badly. And treats her badly. Ends up putting her in the hospital. Marianne comes back to help out her friend. They concoct a plan to, well, you know, these black-eyed peas, we can put some extra seasoning on those. He loves those. Yeah. And next thing you know, Earl is six feet under. Right? The old poison peas and trick. He, it's kind of a Thelma and Louise kind of thing, yeah. you know? They're, they're, they're buddies since, uh, since childhood, and, uh, uh, and they fought through and, and, and helped each other out when they needed each other the most. It's uh, Goodbye Earl from the Chicks on Sound of
Wow, Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks. Goodbye, Earl. Earl is uh, an infamous uh, scoundrel and and very bad character. Um, You know, for my next pick, Greg, I'm going to give the lady some uh, Nelly Furtado. What a great talent. Canadian singer, um, you know, has has really dropped off the radar in the last couple of years. But a huge hit from her third studio album, Loose, in 2006, was this song, Maneater. And she is not uh, decrying a character. She's kind of trying the role on, right? Yeah, right. She is. Uh, she was inspired uh, by the Hole and Oates song, she said, both in the production uh, style and, and kind of the music. But she takes it in a place uh, of her own, portraying this woman who is a man-eater, makes you spend hard, makes you want all her love, makes you buy cars, make you makes you cut the cards, right? Mm. Cheat, you know, do anything. She is addictive. Everybody get your neck to crack around, all you crazy young people, right? Look at this man-eater. Um, and, uh, you know, she's an enlightened, empowered woman, but, but she is talking about a character, and uh, she really brings this, this frightening woman, <laughs> this dangerous woman, uh, this black magic woman. That was another one I was considering. Uh, she really brings uh, that character to life. So Nelly Furtado, Manny. Nelly Furtado, Maneater. Wow, we need a new Nelly Furtado out. We do. It's been years since we've heard from her. I thought she was a great artist. Way too long. Coming up, we share more of our favorite songs about shady characters. And we'll hear from the Grammy-nominated Austin duo Black Pumas about the music that got them hooked on Sonics. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. And this week, we are sharing some of our favorite songs about shady characters. 'er Ne'er-do-wells. No good nicks. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many words for bad people. Greg, you're next. What do you got? Jim, uh, this is kind of right up your alley because I know what a big Floydian you are. I thought about this song, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yes. Well, you know, I think uh, especially the the Sid Barrett era... (laughs) The Sid Barrett era for Pink Floyd was was where it's at for me, and uh, this was their first single, Arnold Lane. Uh, Sid Barrett, being the primary songwriter and vocalist in the band at the time, was coming up with these uh, let's let's just say unconventional ideas for songs. Yes. yes. Um, apparently, the song grew out of the fact that uh, they knew a person like Arnold Lane. Uh, when he was growing up near Roger Waters, their yeah, their, their parents were were friends. 
And there was this character in the neighborhood who used to, uh, you know, steal women's laundry off the clothesline when it was hanging outside and apparently uh, wearing it. Yeah, to uh, wear it, yeah. Yes. See, I, see, I think the only thing wrong with that, uh, not because we were not judgmental on sound opinions, is the thievery. Exactly. And, and that the song got banned from BBC Radio, not because of the thievery, okay, here's this guy who's a kleptomaniac, but because he was apparently a cross-dressing right. transvestite. And, you know, I think Sid Barrett's point here was that even though English society was painting this guy as a scoundrel and a villain and a bad dude, uh, you know, he was not at all. In fact, what he was doing was uh, illustrating in this song that this fet particular fetish is a little bit more widespread than some people may actually believe. They don't yeah. want to admit to themselves that that this is going on in their society. Well, you know, but those in fact, vic- Barrett those is saying, Victorians, yeah. yeah, those Victorians were yeah. quite a bunch. <laughs> so he's saying, you know, he came up with Arnold Dane. It's not the guy's actual name. He just came up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a fictional name, but about an every uh, a, a real occurrence in, in, in his uh, neighborhood. And it's an everyday person who happens to indulge a fetish that is far more commonplace than British society would like to acknowledge. I think it's a protest song in a lot yeah. of ways, you know? Well, Sid Barrett was wear your freak flag proudly and That's high. Right. Sid yeah. Barrett coming out of the gates hot, you know, with yeah. this uh, song. Pink Floyd's Arnold Lane on Sound Opinions. Arnold Lane had a Despite being banned by the BBC. Greg, I have one more uh, song. When you talk about memorable uh, villainous characters in hip-hop, they are legion. Uh, But I think there are a few uh, voices in in the history of rap that have been better storytellers than Ghostface Killa of the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, his novelistic eye for detail, his ability to mix both horror and and crime and humor and sarcasm, uh, he really is one of a kind. And I could have gone with a number of his story songs, but Maxine from 2001, a record he put out with Raekwon, one of the offshoot Wu-Tang Clan uh, albums. I mean, there were so many different combinations coming from that talented crew out of Staten Island. You know, so Maxine (laughs) is is, uh, uh, a drug fiend, okay? So she's kind of villainous to begin with, but she decides to kill her supplier, Mooney. 
and she has some help. Her kids, it's a family that kills together, stays together. <laughs> uh, they all uh, throw Mooney out the window, all right? Uh, but not uh, until after they start beating him up uh, and pour a uh, pot of hot grits on him. <laughs> So, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 that doesn't sound like it should be funny, right? But but the way that Ghostface Killer gets into it and tells the story certainly is. Uh, there is a clean version of it, thankfully, because the dirty version we would never be able to sample. Ghostface Killer, Maxine from 2001. Hey, yo, in Pam's house there was money missing. She was too dumb, had her nose numbs. In the kitchen, her kids never ate BCW's involved with her Kids that she never seen Shipped to the Florida Maxine, dark-skinned, poor-headed Me, pins right hand Together they're the coldest fiends Aw, guess who arrived at the door It's Mooney the supplier Spoon over the door Open the door Maxine, he gon' kill me Chill, I got a friend, cop Girl, you don't know it's B3 Long kicks, the hinges flew off Kids screaming, the heavy face slap Blue Maxine head off It's on in the crib You wrong for what you did You gon' pay, Pam that boo kiss your kids, y'all get the f in the room. Do you ain't not real daddy? Next time you see my caddy, boy flag me. This is where we up at people's movement. Maxine's in the kitchen crying, grits is balling on the side. She had a cup of lies, somebody gotta die. Uh-huh. Y'all up, smoked up my packages. Y'all had Mac, she impacted. She worked the aunt May, I want mine. Pulled out the nine, get in the tub. He seen the hot iron, pulled the plug out. He stink pan, bought it back the penny on good times. Vacuum the dollar bill, he sniffed like six lines. He put his gad down, why he do that? Creeping through the crib was Maxine. Potholder down with the grits. The one and only Ghostface Killer telling the story of Maxine, another villainous scoundrel shady character in music history. Have you got any candidates for that ignoble list? Leave a message on our website, soundopinions.org. That's a little bit of the song Colors by Black Pumas, a song by the Austin rock and soul duo performed earlier this year at President Joe Biden's inauguration primetime special. Talk about a sweet gig, yeah. Mr. Cott. And in addition to that honor, Black Pumas are nominated for three Grammy Awards, including one for Album of the Year for their self-titled debut. Black Pumas is made up of singer and songwriter Eric Burton and producer and guitarist Adrian Quesada. Our producer, Alex Claiborne, caught up with them last month to talk about the songs that got them hooked on Sonics, a.k.a. the music that made them want to become musicians in the first place. Let's start with producer Adrian Casada's pick, N.W.A.'s 100 Miles and Runnin'. My name is Adrian Casada from Black Pumas, and I am here to talk about the song. I had a hard time finding a song that I felt really made me want to be a musician, but I, I, I was kind of scanning my brain for um, songs from my formative years that I felt like really had a lasting impact. And I had this memory of being a kid on my bed, and I had this little Casio keyboard, and you could program drums on it, and you could do all kinds of stuff. And I remembered. You know, we were we had all the NWA tapes, and there was something about the sound of it, this song in particular, that I sat down on a keyboard and like dissected it in my brain, and I feel like it was maybe one of the 
key moments in my life where I set me up down a path as a producer. You know, there was a certain shock value, and, and I was from South Texas, and honestly, like, some of the subject matter, even police brutality, things like that, honestly were completely over my head when I was a kid. I was in South Texas, a predominantly Mexican-American um, town. Obviously, there's there's uh, layers to NWA and what they were talking about at the time that, that is still kind of uh, really important nowadays. Picking up a brother with an attitude confused. Yo, but Dre never had nothing to lose. One of the few that's been accused and abused by the crime of boys in the young minds. But you don't know nothing till you've been in my shoes. And Dre is back from the street. I even was sort of familiar back then with that Dr. Dre was the producer. I remember that. I remember knowing that. And I didn't really understand what that was. But because they were sampling and, and creating loops. And back then there was this, that era, kind of like Public Enemy, that's, uh, some of the Dr. Dre stuff was so chaotic. The loops were not even in the same key a lot of times. Um, there were like, you know, they would loop drums from something and then take a guitar from something else and then horns from something else. And they weren't always in the same key. But I feel like because in my formative years, I heard so much music like that. Nowadays, I kind of actually like when something's a little tiny bit um, left field in a song like that. This one goes out to the four brothers from Concord. You're almost there, but the FBI has a little message for you. By today's standards, technically even to pull that off back then when there was limited technology you know we can do whatever now on logic and garage band they actually had to find the, the stuff back then they had to find the the perfect drum track and then they had to find the perfect whatever there's a, a saying a friend of mine in mexico who um goes down there and studies different kind of traditional music down there and there's a saying that they told him some old elder musicians in mexico said it el chiste es hacer ruido and that just means like the point is to just make noise. It doesn't like translate literally, but it's like the point is just to make a sound. I feel like that kind of uh, attitude of that early um, hip hop production was, was one thing that I, I always was attracted to. Now we'll hear from singer and songwriter Eric Burton about the song that got him hooked on Sonics. My name is Eric Burton of the Black Pumas as well. And one song that really inspired me, kind of getting me hooked on Sonics, and as well as songwriting, is a song by Greg Alexander and the New Radicals called You Get What You Give. First time I heard it, I was at a movie, uh, Surf's Up. I was watching Surf's Up. You know, Shia LaBeouf's like playing this animated penguin, kind of surfer penguin thing. The song came on at the very end of the, the film, and my uncle just kind of uh, exclaimed, like, hey, man, like, that's my friend, and his voice has gotten better over the time. He sounds amazing. And we ended up going to his Malibu house, like, that Christmas, and, you know, Greg was very encouraging of, like, my family to get me a guitar just to kind of get me started. And uh, yeah, we've just kind of been close ever since. And I just love the way that he's able to 
you know, kind of almost preach a message, you know, while also still being very inclusive um, to the masses and still yet in a lighthearted way, you know, it's like, wow, this guy is really saying some, some, uh, some deep things, yet it's still, it's still very much palatable to, to many. Health insurance with my flying FDA, big bank is buying fake computer crashes, dining, cloning, well, then multiplying fashion shoots with Beckett Hansen, Courtney Love and Marilyn Manson, you're all fakes, run to your mansions, come around, we'll kick your asses. You know, part of entertaining and writing a song or writing a joke or whatever it is that you're presenting to someone, it's important that you learn through these people, it's important to come with the straight up truth, nothing but the truth, even if people can't handle it, to then find the balance of familiarity and finding a through line where people can receive these messages from a place of love. Thanks to Eric Burden and Adrian Casada of Black Pumas for talking with us about the songs that inspired them to make music. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a classic album dissection on the 50th anniversary of Carole King's Tapestry. All right. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne. And our intern is Sol Delgadillo. But you are so far.